Here on Just Energy, we explore what energy injustice is, its racial and social dimensions, and how to make future energy policy making more inclusive by design. Because it's never just about energy, it's about people. Greetings, this is your host, Sonia Carley. It's a pleasure to provide this bonus episode of Just Energy today with co-host Maddie Yaswick and guest Jigger Shaw. Maddie, a doctoral student at the O'Neill School, is back with us again after interviewing Keith Cooley previously, an episode that you surely do not want to miss. Jigger Shaw comes to us today with quite the clean energy resume. He is currently the director of the Loan Program Office for the U.S. Department of Energy, which finances large-scale transformative energy infrastructure projects within the U.S., Prior to the Department of Energy, Jigger founded Sun Edison, the first solar company to offer pay-as-you-go financing, co-founded Generate Capital, a successful infrastructure financing venture capital firm, and served as the founding CEO of the Carbon War Room, a nonprofit founded by Sir Richard Branson. He has also co-hosted the podcast of The Energy Gang across seven years and is the author of Creating Climate Wealth, Unlocking the Impact Economy. It is a great honor to have Jigger here today, and I'm especially excited to dig into both the business and the government sides of energy justice. Jigger, Maddie, it is so great to have you both here today. Thanks, Sonia. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> uh, Jigger, so, you know, normally Sonia would start the show by asking where her student co-host is from. And since I've already had the pleasure of answering that question, I thought I might take some liberties and ask you the same, if we could. So would you mind telling us where you're from and something you love about your hometown? Sure. Well, I currently live in Bethesda, Maryland, and Bethesda, Maryland's awesome, but I'm not sure it's as interesting as where I'm, I grew up, which is Sterling, Illinois, uh, where, which used to have the seventh largest steel mill in the country. And funny story, I mean, it shut down while I was there, which is not a funny story, but um but I used to swim in the river there and I learned how to water ski and I was a competitive swimmer and all that stuff. And when I got my first job out of um, uh, college, I did a report on like the dirtiest steel plants in the country. And it happened to be Northwestern steel and wire. And I was like, like, wait, was I upstream from the plant? I think I was <laughs> like, I was like, Oh, yeah. Well, what's something that's amazing about Sterling that you really just cannot find anywhere in the D.C. metro area? Well, I was an extraordinary Frisbee golf player. Nice. And we had free Frisbee golf at Sinisippi Park in Sterling, Illinois, and I loved it. It was like all the different species of trees and all the different plants and all the other things that we had and like and you were like, you know, like I remember they sold the Frisbee discs at the local liquor store. <laughs> That's and <great. laughs> so we were like 14 years old and we'd have to go in there and like pay five dollars for like one of those discs. And uh, it was like, wait a second, are we supposed to be in here? But that's that's the only place you could buy them. That's where you got them. Oh, that's fascinating. You know, one of my favorite questions, um, we teach dimensional analysis in some of our classes. And one of my favorite questions is how many beers does an ultimate Frisbee disc hold? <laughs> oh. Do you have any, any guesses? Well, it depends on the kind of disc, right? Because the putter <laughs> is much deeper. So I probably could get eight ounces in a putter, but I probably couldn't get more than four ounces in a driver. 
yeah, yeah. It's pretty small. Well, I was thinking the ultimate disc, which is like the 175. Oh, you mean the bigger one? Oh, right. That's probably 16 ounces. Yeah, it's about four and a half beers. Can it's four and a half beers? Yeah, yeah, it's so much. Oh my goodness, that's like 64 ounces. That's a lot. Mind blown. Yeah, but I'm glad that they sold the the disc golf ones instead of the ultimate ones. There at the liquor (laughs) store. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So uh, to dive in a little bit, I'm curious, Digger, could you talk to us a little bit about how you landed in DC? Uh, Basically, where are you in your current professional journey? Oh gosh. Well, two different questions. So I landed in DC because I met my wife in college. I followed her to DC. So that's how I landed in DC. She uh, was, you know, White House intern and then, uh, you know, presidential management fellow and has had a distinguished career in the, in the government. So, um, that's why I'm in DC. I started all my companies in DC, et cetera. So I've lived here for a long time. Um, in terms of joining government, um, look, I mean, I have been very blessed to have been part of an industry for so many years and to see it go from basically relative obscurity when I first started, you know, following it closely in like 1994 um, to where it is today. Um, And the government played a big role there. But I'm also like very keenly um, aware of the fact that when I was writing big checks at Generate Capital, we never coordinated with the government. We never checked. We never saw what they were doing. We never really looked at what they thought. I mean, and thinking back now that I have this job, I was like, like, why do we never check? I mean, you had like 10,000 engineers, scientists, and experts on the DEOE platform with the National Labs, et cetera. They could have easily saved us from some of the mistakes that we made over at Generate Capital. And like, and it basically comes down to trust and like just the way in which we reach out to each other. And so when I got the offer to work at DOE, you know, at first I was like, why are they offering me this job? But now I mean, I'm this bridge to the private sector. And I do think that if we're going to solve these big, gnarly problems, the government and the private sector have to work uh, closely to understand each other and then try to work more closely together to reinforce each other's investments. So tell us about your interest in energy justice and what does it mean to you? Well, you know, I have to say that my interest in energy justice uh, took a while to create. Um, I served on the board of Greenpeace. Um, my best friend, uh, Phil Radford, used to run Greenpeace. And so he would, um, he said, hey, it'd be good to have your voice on the board. And I was like, well, I don't really know if I understand any of this stuff, but I'm happy to join. Um, and I remember uh, there was a uh, effort by Greenpeace to shut down a lot of coal plants. And um, there was one specific effort that they led in South Chicago, because I'm from Illinois, and so I paid closer attention to it. And they used all these authentic voices in uh, the South part of Chicago and highlighted just what the health impacts were in that region and how many women were dying early of, of cancers and other things. And it was all because of these urban coal plants. And I remember, um, I don't know if you guys remember this, but like they had this big event and there was a newscaster in Chicago that was reporting on it. And she just started bawling on live TV because she was like, I so associate myself with what these women are going through. And the fact that the mayor doesn't care about this and isn't like going to accelerate this is crazy. And there was this huge outcry that day. And the mayor announced like shutting down the coal plants the next day. Wow. 
And I was thinking, oh my God, like, I can't believe that I'm a small part of this by being on the board of Greenpeace. And I would say that like, that was my initiation into it. Sometimes intellectually understand something, but don't really emotionally understand something. And that's the day that I think I really emotionally understood why this issue was so important. And then after that, I worked really closely with Vote Solar and um, and um, Van Josen's organization at Green for All and the work that they were doing in Washington State. And so it's been something of a journey for me to learn about. I don't certainly believe that I'm a master in it in any way, but like I've like really understood it more. Yeah. I think we're all on a perpetual journey. <laughs> Well, I, I want to pick up on that that same thread of thinking about representation and thinking about who is representing the whole. And a persistent critique in the clean energy industry in particular is the lack of diversity in its workforce. Do you think that this is a barrier to decarbonization and or business success? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it clearly is a challenge uh, for our industry and every other industry. I, I'd say that in general, you know, the biggest problem that we have is, is not um, the lack of diversity at any point in time. Like, I think that, you know, when I started in 1994, obviously the industry had, I don't know, a thousand people that worked in the whole industry. And so like, you know, I'm sure it wasn't very diverse and I'm not, you know, and I'm sure they were like trying to actually just fight for relevancy for the technology. I think that, um, I think the challenge that we have is that the diversity isn't built in from day one, right? That we sort of like, you know, try to become more intentional now, which is great. Michelle Moore at Groundswell did this great report around diversity and why it was important. And I and others like started participating in it. And you saw the Solar Energy Industry Association getting involved. So I think you have like an intentionality now, at least in the industry to become more diverse um, in many different aspects, not just uh, gender or race, but uh, in all aspects. But, but I think that the bigger question I have within the loan programs office is that, I mean, we're standing up 24 new industries. Like there are 24 more sectors that are where solar was in 1994. And how do you build diversity and inclusion in from day one, not just to do it, but because it actually leads to better outcomes and better conversations and better products, right? Because you have more voices around the table. Um, and and I'm, it's not clear to me that we've actually thought that through. I feel like a lot of these conversations are done after the industry has become larger and there are 100,000 people. And you saw that in many sectors, right? The electric utility industry, for instance, is very diverse today, but you know it's because they weren't. And then people lobbied them really hard and then they had diversity officers and they hired more people, et cetera. So I feel like this is a conversation that always seems to happen after the fact and not necessarily up front. Well, I'm curious on that note, have you seen, do any sort of companies or outliers come to mind who are doing that well, whether in including diversity up front or even just addressing energy justice and questions of equity? Even industries writ large? I mean, doing it well is on a relative scale. I, I wouldn't say that anyone's doing it well. I would say that the people who are doing it better um, oftentimes have diversity at its um, core. Like I'll give you an example. Um, the, the lawn care industry, right? The lawn care industry has a lot of diversity built into the lawn care industry for, you know, for, for lots of obvious reasons. Um, and, uh, 
So when you look at the innovation that's happening in lawn care, where there's a lot of jurisdictions who are banning um, lawn mowers and you know leaf blowers and whatever that are that are using gasoline, and I would say most of them are doing it for noise pollution purposes, but also for obviously the two-stroke engines there are worse than your your car. Um, you know, you're seeing an extraordinary amount of innovation occurring now. Like for instance, you can't do commercial lawn care with um, off-the-shelf electric components because they last for like 90 minutes. And like most professional lawn care companies do like 40 yards in a, in a day. And they literally are just like running from yard to yard to yard. And they got to keep these things recharged. And so like one group um, that I talked to the other day, like literally built a custom trailer that they could like stick their tools in. And in the seven minutes it took them to go to the next spot, it would like recharge by like, you know, 40%. And like, so their work is now starting to be featured across the country and lots of people are using it. And so when you look at the decarbonization of lawn care, it's very diverse people that are a part of this because all the experts in the sector are diverse, like to begin with. Right. And so, so I don't know that that's a good example of like the intentionality of this, but it is, it is one area that I see just almost every voice there is is diverse. Sometimes when, um, when I hear goals like energy justice or equity, uh, within the space, I often tend to think about opportunities mainly for nonprofits to be acting on those goals. And I think I can become skeptical occasionally of businesses who claim to work towards societal goals. And so I'm curious your thoughts. Do you see a contradiction between the goal of energy justice specifically and the goal of building a profitable business? Gosh, such a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> Let me start in a slightly different place and see if I get to the answer to your question. Um, so I think there's a lot of people who um, have different opinions within each uh, group, right? Whether it's African-Americans or Hispanics or LGBTQ plus folks or others. And, um, and they're, they're actually solving for different problems, but I think they make common cause in certain areas. Like I'll give you an example, like in the clean energy space, there are a lot of people from diverse backgrounds and from justice uh, communities who just want to make a lot of money. They're like, can I just get a piece of the American dream? Can I just get a chance to live like my best self, like, and to do all the things that I know I am capable of doing. And will someone just give me a fair shake? Right. And then there are others who are more concerned, of course, about all of the negative environmental impacts that have occurred and like what it's done to their family and the health impacts in their community and other things. And they've made common cause, right, in the way in which they're fighting against um, pollution and, you know, and, and, and these issues. But they're solving for different outcomes, right? They're solving, one is solving for the outcome of like shutting down these plants and reducing the pollution coming from them and improving the health impacts of their community. But the other one is saying, you can't just shut it down. You actually have to replace it with electricity from another like type of generating facility. And I want a piece of that. Like I actually want to develop those assets and I want to be able to make money on developing those assets. Right. And 
And I sometimes think that the nonprofit world focuses more on the shutting down of things and maybe like, you know, subsidies and, and, you know, money that gets allocated to provide people with heat pumps or other things, but they're not necessarily fully in tune with the full capitalist ambitions of some of the other members of the same communities to like actually make money on the deployment of the solutions. And I, I, and I, so I, I don't know that nonprofit versus for-profit matters so much in my mind. I mean, I clearly worked for the Carbon War Room and, you know, was a nonprofit leader. It didn't suit me all that well. I mean, I loved being there, but I don't think I excelled at it as much as I do in the for-profit world. But, um, but, but I understand both sides and believe that they're symbiotic and we need all of those pieces within a healthy society. But I, I do think that um, they're solving for different goals. And sometimes they assume that each other is solving for the same goal. And I don't think that's true. It almost sounds like they they both have a role to play yeah. towards advancing it, but potentially through like they're comp- they can be complementary in how they go about it. Yeah, they can certainly build on each other in terms of because they're both needed, right? Like the thing is, is that um, you know, shutting things down like matters, right? Like obviously, like doing less harm as fast as you can uh, matters, but you know, like a lot of people are still trying to feed their families and, you know, do all the things they want to do. And some of those plants that they're shutting down paid $3 million in property taxes every year to the local town. Right. And so now the schools don't get $3 million worth of property taxes every year. I mean, when I was working to shut down natural gas plants in, um, in New York, you know, there were like Girl Scout and Boy Scout troops that would come up and fight shutting down the natural gas plant. Cause they were like, this is how like our, you know, troops got supported. Right. And so you can imagine that both sides matters, right? They want to know like, yeah, we want that thing shut down. We want to make sure that we don't have that pollution anymore, but we also want $3 million in property taxes every year. Right. And so like, like how do we actually like rebuild the industrial base so that we actually have something cleaner and better that come in there. And I don't know that the brainstorming on the nonprofit side is normally as productive on figuring out what to replace it with as they are at shutting it down. And so there's a symbiotic relationship there. And, and you know, it, I think sometimes people view it as sequential, right? They're like, well, let's first shut it down. Let's focus on that. And then we'll focus on replacing it. And I was like, well, but there's, there's a gap of 3 million bucks a year when you do that. Like, so maybe we should do this simultaneously, right? And then if people actually saw what they could replace that old plant with, before they had to make the decision of shutting down the plant, well, then they'd be more open to shutting it down because they know they can replace it with something that's bigger and beautiful and more symbiotic with the ecosystem. You're building up while you're, while you're shutting down. Yeah. I assume that nonprofits are also great partners in this process, right? And actually providing assistance and on the ground kind of bottom up programs and efforts to, to help these communities. Right. Oh, for sure. I mean, especially as it pertains to uh, worker transition too, right? I mean, like, you know, I mean, for many of these folks, they certainly didn't ever want the negative impacts in their community, but they also wanted to put food on the table and, um, you know, and for them, the transition so that they can continue to put food on the table really matters. Um, And hearing them and understanding their fears around the transferability of their skills, uh, you know, and other things, you know, the fact that they don't want to move from that particular location to another place, or, you know, they've got, you know, tons of family there or whatever it is. Like, I mean, I think it's just, it's, 
it's an, an extraordinarily important part of the conversation and one that frankly, I think it's, you know, short shrift. I mean, there's a lot of talking points around it, which is great. But like, I think when you look at the outcomes, for instance, of um, all the programs during the Clinton administration, there was huge amounts of, um, as you remember the whole, like, you know, I hear your pain listening tour of the 92 campaign and there was tons of money spent. And I think the Obama administration did a big study and they showed that the vast majority of the money that was spent had no perceptible uh, outcome differential, right? Folks who got retraining versus folks who didn't basically had the same outcomes, right? We've got to do better, right? I mean, otherwise people that you don't, you don't have that trust. Yeah. So Jigger, you're known for the phrase deploy, 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 and for reinforcing the narrative that we already have solutions to many of the major energy and social challenges. Do you think that the same applies to questions of energy justice and are the solutions there, but we're just maybe not applying them? Oh gosh. I mean, now you're like, you're stretching me way outside of my area (laughs) of expertise. Look, I would say, let me say it a little bit differently. I, I think the way that you solve problems of affordable housing or of um, good quality jobs or of, you know, affordable transportation or energy burden is to actually solve problems of affordable housing, good transportation (laughs) or energy burden. Right. And I find that the vast majority of the solutions that I see are largely subsidy related. It's like, let's give people larger vouchers. Let's figure out how to give people like, you know, let's restructure the rate tariffs so that people pay lower bills on their, you know, and their bills. Right. When the Department of Energy has like a huge number of solutions that we've invented over the last 40 years that are ready to go. Like, for instance, you can make a net zero manufactured home today that won't blow away in a hurricane for like $10,000 more than the currently one, the ones they buy. But every time you talk to the manufactured home community, it's 50% more, right? And, and so like, we've got to figure out as a government how we actually bring some of these um, uh, startup companies who have a desire to break the mold um, and to bring these new solutions to the table, uh, a voice at the table, right? And the same thing's true for transportation solutions, right? You know, there's a lot of people who've been told from a very young age that they should own their own car and they should own their own house, both of which are by far the worst investments that people make in this country, right? Every, every single like study that has ever been done shows that outside of certain zip codes on the East and West Coast, you lose 2% a year on your your investment in your house, right? After paying for property taxes, having to fix all the stuff yourself, putting in curtains, all that stuff, right? And so so it's this like, you know, everyone lionizes the fact that people shouldn't own their own homes when they don't actually like feature the fact that like you have to pay for when your basement floods, you have to pay for all this other stuff. It's actually a lot better financially to rent. And the same thing's true for car ownership, right? Except for people at the very top, most people just live car payment and car payment, and they, they and it costs a fortune. Like for instance, AAA says that the average car costs seven hundred twenty dollars a month, and the average like SUV or truck costs about eight hundred fifty dollars a month. I have never paid that in my life, <laughs> right? So clearly, there are a lot of people who've got lemons who, after they pay for insurance and after they pay for like constantly fixing their car, they're at seven hundred and twenty dollars a month, right? 
And so we need better business models. People just want a reliable car to get to work. They don't care if they own that car or not. They want a car that is their car. They don't want to share it every hour, right? They want their car. They want to be able to put their tools or whatever it is in the back and lock the trunk. But they can rent it weekly. They can rent it monthly. If it doesn't work, they just give it back. They get another one that works. And the fleet actually decides how to not get fleeced at, at, and fixing their cars, et cetera. And I feel like the public-private partnerships that we're putting together are not reflecting all of the solutions that entrepreneurs have to these problems. Instead, they're like, there's a burden here. Why don't we just throw more money at it? And there's just never enough money. But there is an extraordinary amount of American innovation that could actually be used in a good way to like really help solve these problems, I think. So I will, I will ask you a question that uh, hopefully will hit close to home with your current work. So we know that the Biden-Harris administration is focused on ensuring the equity of the energy transition. We see this focus reflected in the DOE's leadership under Secretary Jennifer Granholm and in the development office of the Justice 40 initiative. So I'm curious, how does this focus on equity and justice affect your work specifically in the loan programs office? Well, I mean, it permeates everything we do, right? I mean, you know, we're working in 20 plus sectors from nuclear power to carbon sequestration and storage to hydrogen to, you know, uh, virtual power plants where, you know, we're helping people not pay 30% interest for new refrigerators and water heaters that break, which is what people commonly pay, right? And it's just, it's, it, it just hurts your heart to, to hear about this and the way people are abused in this way. And we do have solutions for that. I, I would say that the thing that um, is hard is that there's so many angles to this, right? Some of the work that we do reduces energy burden. Some of the angles that we do reduces pollution directly, like the monolith materials deal that we approved in December, um, you know, makes carbon black and makes it in a way without any pollution. And right now, every single carbon black plant in the United States is under a consent decree because of local pollution and, and the impacts on local communities, right? But we're getting beat up for the fact that like this plant actually uses natural gas as its feedstock, right? And so I think the, when you have these conversations, it's really hard. I mean, like if it was easy, it would have been done already. It's really hard. But I think that when you think about how polluting these existing plants are and how revolutionizing this American technology really is, I think we have to be able to expand our thinking across all of these areas, right? It's not just pollution. It's not just the empowerment of the population. It's not just wealth creation, right? But it's also figuring out how you actually increase energy resiliency, Right. Like when you think of public safety shutoffs and like the bomb cyclones that we're having and all these things, right? How do you make sure that we're more resilient in the future? Right. And so, and some of these things, I think, in the minds of certain people who are working on one facet of it, are in conflict with each other. Right. And so, like, part of what I try to do every day is to listen more and talk less and figure out how to truly understand the stakeholders that we're working with and really try to figure out like how you take all these competing priorities and find a pathway through, right? It's like that, it's like that thing where you just sit and you meditate in the corner and you're like, oh my God, like there's no way that all of these 10 things can be solved for at the same time. And then you realize, wait, there might be, right? There really might be. 
right? And this virtual power plant stuff, I would say is the pinnacle of this, right? Which is figuring out how to help people not pay 30% interest, right? Not to have cars that are lemons because they're required to get one to get to work, right? Not to have houses that have $800 monthly heating bills, right? But instead give them modern appliances, modern things that all pay for themselves and help them participate in demand flexibility programs, right? Under first quarter 2022, et cetera, which then allows you to have much higher utilization of existing transmission distribution lines so that you can lower the cost of electricity for all Americans, right? Today, the reason why our electricity bills are so high is because the transmission distribution portion of the bill has gone from 30% of the bill to over 55% of the bill, right? Because we build so many of these lines to accommodate renewable energy and all sorts of other things, but we don't use them. Like they're like the utilization rate's gone from 70% to 30%. Demand flexibility, right? Can actually like raise it back to 70%. And so it's a win-win-win across the board. And then on top of that, if we figure out a way to make the folks who are installing these things, right? Better trained, union, right? Better paid and paying jobs, right? Well, then you've got like all of these pieces, right? But all of it's hard, right? Most of the unions don't want to work at the residential level, right? Like most of the uh, communities that we talk to are, you have a 20 minute window to convince them to opt into this program because when their refrigerator breaks, they want a new one that day because they've got $75 worth of food in it that they didn't want to spoil. Right. And so I've got 20 minutes to intervene at that moment and say, call this number, not this number. Right. And it's just, it's hard across the board. We need partnerships and we need to all recognize just how hard this is. And yes, the justice goals are like the center of my thinking on these topics, but figuring out actually how we deploy infrastructure at trillion dollar scale which is what it means to like actually solve climate change and figuring out how to optimize the things just requires an extraordinary amount of communication that sometimes I don't think we do enough of. Hmm. Yeah, that was brilliant. I, I really appreciate how when thinking through these complex solutions, you noted how important partnerships are bringing very many people, diverse uh, groups of people to the table, right? For communication, but then also in thinking about not just technological solutions or economic market solutions, but thinking about institutional changes and behavioral changes and social and cultural changes too, right? They're all part of the, the solutions. Well, I'm so glad that you're doing this and like giving me a forum, but also all the rest of um, your guests a forum to really help to educate people using this long form you know, piece. Like I find that like these 600 word articles like never get into like the actual details. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you one last question. And I yeah. get the special honors of, of getting to ask this question. So you offer just such a unique set of experiences, including time in both government and industry and uh, working in a nonprofit. And as you reflect back on your career, what is some advice that you'd like to offer the next generation of thinkers and leaders in the energy justice space, including any considerations as to where to start their careers? You know, I meet a lot of young people I'm, I'm so fortunate that I get to talk to young people on a regular basis. And um, they really stress out way too much about this question. Like, 
you know, what I tell people all the time is just take the job that you were offered. I mean, you're so lucky to get a job offer. Just take it. One of these people uh, that I was talking to and mentoring, um, like it was a huge clean energy guy and he was from North Dakota and he got this extraordinary job offer to live at home and make $70,000 a year out of college working in the fracking industry. Hmm. And I was like, do it. He's like, really? And I was like, yeah. Like, first of all, those people are hardworking Americans and they are providing like the resources that we all need to live a modern lifestyle. So you can hate oil and gas all you want, but they like, we all use it right every day. Right. And like, you should learn what it is that they that makes them tick and what, is, what it's about. Right. And then a year and a half later with $80,000 in your pocket, you can go do what you want to do. Right. And like, for me, you know, like my journey, I had like two or three jobs in my first five years. And then I settled in on what I wanted to do and found on my path. Right. I mean, people take this decision way too seriously. Right. Like, you know, I mean, the flip side of that comment is like, I mean, I would say the number one key to my success is I sleep seven or eight hours a night. Oh yeah. Good for you. You know what I mean? Like I can't imagine how many people wake up in a cold sweat at two in the morning. Yeah. Right. We all work on super hard problems and it is, it is like, I'm so lucky to be able to work on such super hard problems, but like, oh my God, like take care of yourself. Like self-care around here. Do not stress yourself <laughs> out at 21 years old. And um, and and then just keep working towards like being a better citizen and being a better person and figuring out a way to be a better contributor to your society. And sometimes that's private sector and sometimes that's nonprofit and sometimes it's government and sometimes like it speaks to you in different ways. But listen to that voice and just try to do the best you can for, I mean, for me, this country that has given me so much. I love it. Thank you, Jager. This has been such a delightful conversation and we're so honored to have had you today as our guest. Oh my gosh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. Just Energy is produced by Violet Barron and is a collaboration between myself and my public affairs students at Indiana University. In closing, we wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to our region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miyamiaki, Lenape, Borowadmik, and Sawanwa people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. We implore the federal government to respect its treaties with indigenous nations, as well as recognize all tribes seeking federal recognition.